0: Welcome to Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is is uh, th- uh, four. It's April 6th, 2022. We're ready to begin our worship service. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time we have uh, this evening together. Uh, we pray for fellowship, for that we may be taught by your Spirit. We, we can grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you for those who are here, those who are not. We pray for traveling mercies, uh, those who may be on the road at this hour. Um, We pray for uh, healing for those who are sick as well. Uh, We pray that uh, you will give us comfort as we continue to read your word and forge ahead in uh, this new direction, this new chapter rather, that we will be uh, soon to uh, undertake We thank you for what you have already shown us in the previous chapters. So we pray for wisdom as we move forward. It's in Christ's name. Amen. 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 All right. So, thank you. We are ready uh, to... Actually, we are in Romans chapter 10. This is our course of study, Romans 10. And we're just at the very last two verses in Romans 10. Whether we get through them or not tonight, I don't know. I think we should. It's not a problem. It's verses 20 and 21 of Romans 10. I say we get through them fine. I would love to just dispense with the review because we have had a lot of verses that sort of give us a lot of what we might call review information. Even these last two verses, we have covered verses like this already. We may go over a quick review. I would not say we're going to take a long time. Uh, And then we're going to forge right ahead into Romans 11. Romans 11 is another one of those, what you might call, controversial passages. Many people May not say that. They may say, oh, Romans 11 means this. Well, what we want to do is take our time, allow the scripture to tell us what the meaning is as we go verse by verse, phrase by phrase. So, Romans 11 is on the agenda. Uh, Honestly, I've not gone verse by verse through Romans 11. Of course, I've read it verse by verse, but I'm excited to be able to focus on what is Romans 11 about and I can't wait any anyhow um, just a note I wanted to point out that uh, the website is out there wordistruth.com take a look see what what you may find maybe there's some things of interest old Things all the way back to 2006. So if you want to hear what I sounded like as a child, you could go to the website. Uh, there's a lot there.
1: <laughs> Was that you in the background? Uh, no,
0: no, no, no. But uh, we, yeah, but, we're, yeah, but what, we're, what we're saying is, there's some old recordings there. And you can make fun of me, you could do whatever you want, have fun. It, it will be quite an interesting uh, time for you if you go back there and look at listen to some of those old... I'm not the only one on there, by the way, there's others who are there, I won't mention any names. But then anyhow, it's wordistruth.com in the archives. You can dig in and hear things that I'm sure I would be embarrassed about who knows uh, it's out there you know this is what this is the body of work we have have done and we've accomplished so it's there for us to review so we have as i said Romans chapter 10 the last two verses in front of us today i'm going to my notes here i'm going to get that going here it is Romans 10 20 and 21 it goes like this and Isaiah boldly says I was found by those who did not seek me I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me but concerning Israel he says all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people wow that's tough uh, that's tough, but let's dig in. The Apostle Paul continues to speak directly to Israel. The rejection of their Messiah has a history and context of rebellion and resistance of the Holy Spirit. This resulted in the nation not suitable for their calling. This was seen by their colossal failure and rejection of the very Messiah they were supposed to preach to the nations. As we discussed, many are not learning the lesson from Israel's past and are repeating their failure in the church as God's ambassadors for Christ. So we're, we're going to cover that and uh, try to dig into these last couple verses, uh, uh, although I will say it is pretty ominous, For God to say obstinate and all day long I held out my hand to these people and hmm, that's what we're going to have to dig in and see. Uh, So let's dig into the first phrase. Point one is, and Isaiah boldly says, it was not easy on the Old Testament prophets. That's the first thing. Many today desire to be prophets like those they read about in the scriptures without knowing how difficult their calling was for them. And in this first point, I just like to note, I, especially on social media, I have seen lots of people declaring that they are prophets or they are apostles or something. And they don't realize that these gifts that were given to those uh, in Israel, let's just because obviously Paul is talking about prophets to Israel, and he's talking about Isaiah in particular, they had a rough way to go. It was tough to be a prophet, and you had um, to speak words that inflamed the hearers. You had to speak words of judgment, uh, revealing their sinful behaviors. Uh, What they wanted to do was shut your mouth if you were a prophet, because they didn't want their sins and their rebellion and their uh, disobedience to be noised or heard among all the people. Uh, prophets would also give advice to kings often. Uh, the king would consult the prophet to see if they had a word from the Lord before they went into battle. And sometimes, prophet had to be very careful because if they didn't like what the prophet said, they may persecute or kill the prophet. And that's interesting. Because the prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. A prophet speaks the very words of God. And if you kill the prophet, what are you saying? You are saying, I do not want to hear from God. That's what you're saying, literally. You're saying, God, shut up. And that is tough. Uh, That is a tough thing to consider when um, God is the one who brought you out of Egypt and you know, sustains you, saves you, on and on, provides for you, and yet you're telling God to shut his mouth and you kill the prophet. So it's not a popular thing uh, back in the day to be a prophet. It just was not something that people aspired to be somehow today things have changed people say they got a word from the lord and and thus saith the lord and it, it's tough well you know we have a different view of prophets in our in the church age we believe just like it says in first corinthians thirteen eight, whether they be prophecies they shall cease now, we're not saying that whatever prophecies the bible has will not come to pass but we're talking about God giving revelation uh, in, in this age. At some point, he, he will have given all the revelation he needs to give. And it, you know, if a person keeps talking when there's nothing else to say, most likely what they have to say is not of value. So God has something to say. He talks. He tells us through the prophets. But when he's done talking he stops so that's what it means whether there be prophecies they shall cease and there was a lot of new information in the church to understand and to assimilate and to believe and uh, so God sent New Testament prophets to to make sure that information was disseminated and yet people are trying to perpetuate the gift of prophecy Uh, saying God has got more to say. No, He has already said everything He has to say. We have the completed canon of Scripture. That's what we hold when we lift up our Bibles. I know we don't lift them up as much nowadays, especially mine is electronic. I'd have to lift up my computer. But when we lift up our Bibles, is how I used to say it anyway, we are holding the completed Word of God to man. This is everything God wanted to say to man. He has finished talking. This is what he means by whether they are prophecies, they will cease. So that's 1 Corinthians 13.8. So just a, a, a word about prophets. I should say a word of caution. But, I, you know, people are doing whatever they are big enough to do today. And I'm not trying to get in between them. I'm just, I just want to follow what God is telling us in the scriptures point B we're talking about Isaiah boldly says this is how Paul begins saying this and I say it took courage for the prophets to stand and tell Israel what God declared and decreed against the nation (coughs) of course here I try to talk and here it happens again So I have Jer, which is short for Jeremiah. There were so many passages in Jeremiah that I decided just to put Jer there. I might not even have finished putting the parentheses around it. So if you have it, you can. It's just short for Jeremiah. If you want to know how bold Jer- Jeremiah had to be to tell Israel of all the negative things, uh, I would just say read the book of Jeremiah when you get a chance. We will have some passages that describe some of this, but take some time, if you haven't already, to read the book of Jeremiah and just see how bold a prophet had to be because God was bold. And if God is saying bold things and... Uh, things of judgment, and he's telling the prophet this. He, the prophet has to have that on his lips. Now, the people looked at that as though it was the prophet who originated these things, but it was God. Prophet is just a middleman, what we might call middle management. He gets his instructions from above and he has to tell them, you know pe- to people who are under him. So we can't blame the prophet for delivering messages of doom. So point C, Jesus recounts the record of the prophets whose, whose only crime, <laughs> you might say if they, they really didn't have a crime, they didn't commit a crime, I'm only saying uh, if Israel judged them with death, Uh, then they must have thought there was some sort of crime they committed, or that they said something worthy of death. So when I say whose only crime, they really, they didn't have any crime, but I'm only pointing out whose only crime was speaking the words of God. It was a crime to Israel. I just want to read the flavor of Jesus' commentary on uh, this point. He has a lot to say. Uh, and he, he, he does a good job in characterizing the whole thing. I'm just going to read his words found in Matthew 23, 29 through 37. Let's, let's go right to it. <clears throat> so 29 begins, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build the tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. So notice, They're celebrating the prophets, the old great prophets, but yet they persecuted them. And here they decorate the tombs as though, oh, these were were famous people and we have to, you know, honor them in their death. But yet that is not how they proceeded while they were here on the earth, telling them the word of God. And you say, verse 30. If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding and shedding the blood of the prophets. So notice this is how they looked at it, right? Oh, that's not us. Oh, yeah, they killed the prophets, but we wouldn't do such things. Verse 31 So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Why is he saying that? He's saying that because they were trying to kill him, they were trying to kill Jesus. For speaking out against them, <clears throat> verse 32. Go ahead then, and complete what your ancestor st- ancestors started. And he continues, "You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape? How will you escape being condemned to hell?" Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill, and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And when I think about the Apostle Paul, there you have it, right? He was pursuing Christians from town to town. In fact, he was on his way to Damascus when the Lord intervened and interrupted him. This was what, why we call it the Damascus Road, because that's where he was. Why was he going to Damascus? Not for vacation, to round up Christians and get them uh, persecuted and try to uh, have them recant their faith. So, so notice what Jesus is saying. They will be pursued from town to town. Uh, they will flog. The disciples were flogged in the... and and beaten and Jesus warned them of these things as well so others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town and so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Listen as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I would have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. So we we have read this before, but I just want to read it from the standpoint of how they treated the prophets. It was horrible. They killed them. And Jesus is saying, then you are. They said, well, we wouldn't have been like that. But yeah, you prove, you demonstrate that you are like that by trying to kill me. And then on top of that, what's going to happen when I leave? You're going to pursue All the disciples, all the apostles, and almost all of them were martyred. And there were many martyrs. Uh, They instigated, and they had crucified, and they persecuted the church. In fact, so much so that in Romans 11, where we're going, Paul says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sakes. In other words, they hated the gospel. They rejected Christ and they continued their rejection so much so that they were said to be enemies. Who are we talking about? Israel. Enemies for the church. So we certainly would not want to emulate anything that they were doing. They're enemies. So this is this is information. Hopefully we I know we've discussed it before? Well, we need to keep it before us as we read these verses and remember what happened. So point D, and by the way, they also crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just wanted to point that out. Uh, With all their killing the prophets, well, they killed Jesus Christ. They put him on the cross and put him to death. It's the same pattern That we have from uh, the Jews of old, their ancestors, they did the same thing. So, John 16, 1 through 3, Jesus gives the disciples instructions. He says, um, All this I have spoken, I have told you, so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. So notice, that means they're going to be religious persecution. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. So they're they are not saved, but yet they're involved, heavily involved in religion. That was true of what the scribes, the sages Pharisees, the teachers of the law, all that, all of them were against Christ. So, point number two, we're moving through. So, so as and Isaiah boldly says, point number two says, "I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those <clears throat> who did not ask for me." So, we covered a lot of this last time, and I just want to reiterate uh, a few points as it relates to this. So Paul quotes from Isaiah for the next two verses to close out this chapter. We should know that. Uh, This is, and we'll go to the verses and talk about it in a minute, but... uh, So he, in fact, we're going to read, let's go to Isaiah, let's do it now. Isaiah 65, 1 through 7. Isaiah 65... one through seven so notice the last two verses Paul quotes are right here in Isaiah 65 and we'll get to them as well uh, I believe it's verses two and three um, uh, let's see no actually it's one and two but we'll, we'll get to them as we go so I'll just read the context of 65 one through seven so you can understand what is being said there since Paul is quoting from it so he says I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me I was found by those who did not seek me to a nation that did not call on my name I said here am I here am I all day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in the ways not good. Walk in ways not good. Pursuing their own imaginations. Okay, so that's 65, 1 and 2. But I just want to continue so we can see a people who continually provoke me to very to my very face. Offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick. All this is pagan worship just to note. Pagans were doing these things. And uh, <clears throat> again, again, I said this before, ironically, Israel was supposed to affect the nations around them. The nations are references to Gentiles. They were supposed to bring God's peculiar, unique information, the gospel to them and influence them by their ways. However, the reverse happened. And God is saying, these people are provoking me to my face. That's, that's tough. And offering sacrifices in gardens, and these gardens were, where there were idols and so forth, and they were burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs in whose pots hold broth of impure meat. Now, you know, uh, God has special laws for his peculiar, special nation, Israel. Things they could eat, things they couldn't. He, he outlined it all. You could go to uh, Leviticus 11. You could go to Deuteronomy 14. You could understand a lot of what was uh, the dietary restrictions. Well, not just restrictions, but what was allowed for Israel to eat. And uh, but it, So they thwarted all of that and, and threw it in God's face, ate whatever they wanted, even though it, God said, don't do it. Verse 5 who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are, now remember, this is how uh, they treated the nations. Right? They, they were supposed to be priest nation to the world, go out and teach them about God, tell them about the gospel, but what did they say? Don't come near me, <laughs> I'm, too, I'm too sacred for you. Such people are, God is saying, smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. See, it stands written before me, I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back to their laps, into their laps. Both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, says the Lord, because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defiled me on the hills. I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds so, so they would go up on these hills and on, on, on the mountaintops they would have uh, you know gods that they worshipped, they would ha- also do other unseemly things uh, in front of these statues and, and so forth so a lot of this stuff is unspeakable we don't even want to talk about it it was horrible but God saw it all They did it in the face of God. They were worshiping these pagan deities, which were really no deities at all. They were just gods that were made up by these pagans uh, or Gentiles. And, uh, And like I said, they were supposed to influence the Gentiles. However, the Gentiles influenced them. And there's that verse that people always quote. But they misquoted. It. It's in Psalms. Shall I lift up my eyes unto the hills? from whence cometh my help? My help comes from God. That's wrong. The way they quote that verse. I'm not sure exactly where it is in that, uh, And it's in the Psalms. But this is what it's saying: Shall I lift up my eyes to the hills? Uh, from whence cometh my help? And the answer is: It's a question, but it's a rhetorical question. Basically saying, No, you shouldn't look to the hills. Because that's where the pagans were sacrificing idols and and that's where the pagans were sacrificing two idols and looking to them for their help. And the verse continues to say, no, my help comes from the Lord. So that psalm is misquoted by many, by them saying that they look up to the hills for which comes their help. Their help comes from God who's on the hills or something to that effect. I don't know why I'm talking about this, but anyway, it's just was on my mind from a long time ago as we looked at those verses back to our notes back to our notes Paul uh, he's this is point number two so Paul is quoting this information uh, from Psalm uh, I'm sorry Isaiah 65 1 through 7 I just gave you more context it was really 65 1 and 2 I just wanted you to see that Israel they were wicked. I, we could come up with more words for some of the things that they did and uh, words that are disgusting. And God, in every way he could, he let people know that he was, that smoke was in his nostrils, fire was, he was going to judge them, on and on. He was telling them, in every way he could, Israel had failed. And they disgusted him. So we're going to continue. We'll see more of this. And I, you know, as Paul ends with these last two verses, Romans chapter 10. And then, you know, we know that there are no chapter breaks in the original letter. But whoever was writing or, or uh, dividing up the letter, you know, using the chapter breaks, they did a good job. Because as they end with all of this judgment, they continue, still talking about Israel in chapter 11 of Romans. But he says, I say then, has God cast away his people which he foreknew? God forbid. So he sort of opens a new way of thinking about it, similar to what he did in Romans 9. But it does start a new line of thinking. So what you have uh, in these last two verses is about judgment. How God is displeased with Israel. Extremely displeased. Mad at Israel. And we're speaking anthropopathisms and anthropomorphisms. But what we're saying is that God is, in every way he can, is telling us in terms we can understand that he is highly displeased and he will judge Israel. This is the last of chapter 10. And remember, chapter 10 is about salvation. So obviously, the massive, the colossal failure of Israel is that they refuse to be saved. They refuse to believe and allow God, the Holy Spirit, to lead them into salvation and to help them as they were executing uh, god's plan under the law so back to our notes god didn't appoint b god did not need israel to be a light to the gentiles when i say he wanted them to be but he didn't need them to be that's my point but they were blessed to be called of god and to partner with him for his purpose Now, I just have another Isaiah 49, 6. Since we're already in Isaiah, let's just read this one. 49, 6. He says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant? This is God talking to Israel. I could start at 5. Why don't I do that? And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel, right? He's talking to Isaiah, who is the prophet, right? And to bring Jacob Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength, says Isaiah. He says, now he's quoting God. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant? To restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you, here it is, a light for the Gentiles. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Why do I like this verse? Because it does detail the calling of Israel. What God put them in place to do and how they utterly failed. So this, this, this is a good verse, when you think about it, what job Israel had. Uh, they were to be a light to the nations, instead, instead of being a light, they adopted the nations' darkness, and did not tell them the gospel at all, which was, uh, they wanted to separate themselves, thought they were too good to be a part of, uh, you know, to, to consort with Gentiles. Continuing in our notes, point C. The context of Romans 10 is about Israel's failure. Paul is quoting these verses because it works out that the Gentiles are now prominent in the church. Now think about the reversal of things where we are. And Paul is seeing the irony of all of this. So in Romans 11, 11 through 14, let's go to Romans again. We're going to be covering a lot of these verses in more detail. So... Just as a preview of coming attractions. Romans 11. Let's read it. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. So, listen, we could talk about Israel all we want and how terrible, how horrible, how repugnant they were. But, and Paul knows probably even way more than I do or what we already read. Uh, But no, he says, not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Interesting. Interesting turn of events, you could say. So uh, when he says salvation has come to the Gentiles, he doesn't mean that the Gentiles didn't have salvation. But that the Gentile nations now have the church. And the church is in every nation, and now we are the ones out there preaching the gospel. Right? This is what he means. Salvation came to Israel. It didn't mean that only Israel had it. It just meant that it was it was Israel's job to go out to the world and be a light to the Gentiles. Right? But because of Israel's transgression and all of their discipline, a new God not only disciplined them, but a new dispensation arose and that is the one that we are in right now, the church, the age of grace or whatever, dispensation of the fullness of times, A mystery. There's a lot of ways to talk about it. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. So the position that the church is holding now does make Israel jealous. They're, They're looking at us because we're the ones now speaking the word of truth in the world and that was their job. And we now have that position. Verse 12. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Now, he's talking about later in the world when uh, Israel is saved, which he will mention in verse 26 and 27. Where he talks about uh, in this way all Israel will be saved. Verse 13, I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, even though Paul is using Gentiles here, he's not using it to say that we are Gentiles. He's only using it in the context of Israel because they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. And Paul is saying, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. But now he realizes that in Christ, there is no Jew and there is no Gentile. There are people who have Jewish and Gentile origins or roots. If you ask me, what am I? I'm in the church. I belong to Christ. I'm a new creation. If you say, what, where did I come from? I'm going to say my background was Gentile. And that's that's what Paul is dealing with. So he says, I take pride in my ministry. So here he is, an apostle. He's a Jew, and he's an apostle to the Gentiles. Wow. Uh, remember how the Jews felt about Gentiles. And Paul, in fact, if you said that, you would be looked down in Judaism. But on Paul's side, he's saying, hm, I take pride in my ministry. That's what I do. I'm not worried about the distinctions that happen. I'm just tell-. So verse 14, as we uh, end out this part, in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy, and to save some of them. Are we still, we're still talking about that Israel needs salvation. So Paul, even as in his being an uh, apostle to the Gentiles, is also seeing how that would inspire the Jews to come to Christ as well, through envy, jealousy. So, we're, we're going to, so I can't wait till we get to this. There's going to be a lot to... Uh, I'm glad we're going to be able to go through verse by verse and document it. That should, should be some good fun for us. I say fun, I mean biblical work. So uh, not fun in the sense of we're playing games here. Point C. Our context in Romans 10. Oh, I think we covered this, right? This is point C. So now let's move on to the next... Um, point here so let's just round the whole thing out as i as isaiah boldly says i was found by those who did not seek me i revealed myself to those who did not ask for me he's talking about to the nations right uh he says um our, uh but concerning israel he says now we're going to just think about that phrase for a minute and let's look at the points here there is no question about the subject and context of Romans 10. We already know what that is. It's clear. My hope as we reach, as we, we have reached the last verse, that we have an understanding. So this has been our quest in our Bible studies. As we go through the word of God and we approach a chapter we want to be able to say, okay, it's like climbing a hill. We get, <clears throat> we're climbing that hill. What does that mean? It means we're trying to understand what is God trying to tell us in this chapter. And we got to look at the context. We got to look at the words that are being said. What, what's the points being made? What is he trying to tell us? Right. We, we, we're constantly trying to do that as we read those opening verses. We examine the phrases. But then we start getting up a little ways and we start building some good ground under us and we're able to look and see where we came from. And at some point as we're climbing, we get to the top and we're able to see exactly what the chapter is all about. And then as we start heading down the hill, all of those verses corroborate what we had already covered. So they are just as poignant and, uh, you know, important, significant as what the verses were when we were climbing because they all help us to know that what we are talking about is what the Spirit of Truth is teaching us. And as we climb down, and, and this is where we are, we're just at the point where we're getting ready to climb down, getting ready to tackle another chapter, but we're... Hopefully you now have an understanding of what Romans 10 is all about. And if you have believed what we're talking about, if you have, then you can talk about these things from a standpoint of not just winging it or as what I would say, shooting from the hip or looking at some commentary somewhere trying to say, well, let me see what that word says. Let me see what that's about. No, you have a context. And you have documentation for why you believe what you believe. Hopefully, this is something that you can build upon. So, this is, we're continuing. Point B. Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, let's look at this point to know. Uh, We've read it, but I want to read it again. This is Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. So it says... Paul says, On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised that's Gentiles, right, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, and this is Paul meeting with the other apostles right he you know this is really how they divvied up the you know the the territory in you know in terms of the demographics they wanted to uh, decide who was best to go where. Paul is saying, I, "I'm, you know, they were fine with me going to the Gentiles, and I was fine with them going to the circumcised, and and this is obviously what God had called them to do." Verse eight: For God, who is at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. So notice, this is information. That we should know about when we think about the Apostle Paul, even though we're talking about somebody who was a Pharisee. <laughs> now, Pharisees not just any old person in Israel. Pharisee had a high position. I mean, they were what we would call experts in the law, not just somebody who knows the law. Experts in the law. So you don't just approach Paul. As somebody, you know, as a novice, he was, he says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. What does that mean? He was a teacher of Pharisees, even. So God worked in the apostle Paul. You would think, okay, Paul is trained. He's equipped. As soon as I turned him around, I can show him all the things where he can go right to those people he knows how they think and he can best witness to them (coughs) excuse me But what happens what irony is this Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles and he said earlier I'm proud of this I'm not worried this is somehow a slight to my of who I am Paul was saying you know what this is God has given me this. And I love it and I'm going to embrace it. I just think about that when it comes to you. Where you are in this world. Are you pleased with what God has given you? Where he what he has called you to? Are you like, "Well, I wish I was over here doing that. <clears throat> I wish I could have done something over there." You know, but that's not what God called you to. And I love Paul's attitude. So verse 9, James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, right? These were the ones who were the closest to Jesus. uh, Gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I had been eager to do all along. Back to our notes. I just wanted you to see Paul's calling, right? How important that was to understand, right? Uh, Israel, Paul understood it and was able to talk to Israel as well. So we have a couple more verses to go. Let's, Let's dig in. And here's the last verse, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So, first point is Paul quotes from Isaiah 65-2. This is, like I said, 65-1 and 2, the last two verses in Romans 10. To continue the thought of their disobedience. Now, the greatest disobedience came as a result of them crucifying their Lord. This is the horror in it all. So, uh, Paul continues in this next verse. He's quoting these two verses to let you know Israel was disobedient. Their disobedience stemmed from the fact that they refused to believe in Christ. I mean, we, we know we have to believe in Christ in order to do works. I know there are Christians who put the cart before the horse and think they have to do works in order to... Um, say they believe in Christ, to be saved. But that's not the case. You can't serve God unless you are saved. Completely. There's no like, well, you're saved halfway, and then God is saying, well, this is a proving ground to see whether or not I'll let you be saved the rest of the way. No, no. You're saved the moment you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, anyhow, Isaiah 65, 3 is continue continuing to uh retell the story of israel's disobedience where it talks about god to his face they did this and then john 8 39 through 42 we're gonna um, let you read the isaiah passage and let's go to the john 8 passage because we actually already read it so it's where he says to they disobeyed me to my face by going up and and uh, the hills, and sacrificing to idols, and burning incense to idols, right? And God is able to see that, and he is incensed by it. So, but then, how did they do it as far as the Lord Jesus Christ? All right, Eight thirty-nine through 42. Let's look at John 8, because remember, this is to his face. This is some of the things they said. They said, Abraham is our father, they answered. Jesus says if you were Abraham's children said Jesus then you would do what Abraham did as it is you are looking for a way to kill me now just to note this is not new they were always trying to figure out how can we get this Jesus on a cross how can we kill him how can we shut his mouth remember just like the prophets of old they didn't want to have uh, their sins and everything uh, you know trotted out before them by a prophet They hated the prophets, and they wanted to shut their mouths. They killed them. Same thing they wanted to do with Jesus. Um, And Jesus says, well, you want to kill me? A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. Notice, illegitimate children. It's a dig on what they thought about Jesus. They protested, the only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. So in other words, (laughs) they are literally telling God to his face to shut up and we will kill you. Literally telling God. I mean, by telling Jesus to his face, by rejecting him. I didn't even bring the verse that says "You have a," where they told Jesus he had a demon. They, they even accused Jesus of being a demon. <sighs> it's reprehensible behavior. Let's continue on. Point B. All day long I have held out my hands. So God's character of grace, mercy, and patience are seen in the handling of Israel I mean if you think about it God is saying to them I've been patient I'm here I've never stopped loving you I never stop providing for you I'm calling you I'm you know obviously they get to a point where there needs to be discipline but God told them that that was the case I mean you look at Romans 11 25 through 27 let's look at that Romans 11 uh, 25 says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, <clears throat> all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So look, all that Israel has done, what does God do? He says, I'm going to save them. Obviously, those who believe, but yes, he's still there for Israel. He's not finished with it. He doesn't (laughs) cast them away. As Paul says, has God forsaken his people, which he foreknew? Absolutely not. Foreknown means they're in the plan of God, and God will continue to work with them. So point C, would we have been as gracious as God, this is the question. When we read that story in Matthew 21, this is we read this before already, so we're going to quickly skim through, I'm just reminding you it's here. It's in Matthew 21, through 46, says this, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. So you know the story. Uh, When he went to collect, they killed the servants. He sent more servants. They killed them as well and treated them harshly. And then after, after all, he sent his son. He said, well, certainly they will listen to the son and um, no, they said, no, this is the, the heir. Let's kill him and take the inheritance. Just let it be ours. And so would we have been gracious? No, no, we would not. God is the one gracious. And when we think about uh, this, we have to think, we would want to think, yeah, we would do the right thing. But really, uh, we, we're not coming from a place where God is. God has a plan that He's trying to execute. God is working on an agenda that He is. It is not just God is doing these things out of the blue. He is working on the plan. And He has been working on this plan since the creation of the world. So all of it in His mind is for Him to fulfill His purpose in the world. And He's not going to let disobedient people stop Him, obstinate people. Stop him. So point D and E, we're going to talk about those two words. The disobedient and obstinate people. And I say, those words speak for themselves. Do I really need to comment on these words? Disobedient and obstinate? No. Why? Because, I mean, just thinking about the words, they talk about being stubborn and all of that. But I wanted to give you the definition for those words so you can broaden the context a little bit. So they are only, they are not only disobedient, right? And there's the Greek word for it. Uh, it means to disbelieve willfully and perversely. Uh, you might sometimes it's good to look up what perversely means. is It means unreasonably, ir- irrationally, defiantly. So it's good to know. It, Sometimes you got to dig into these words to get the meaning on the English of what what they're trying to describe. To not believe, to be disobedient, obey not, unbelieving. So this is what God had to deal with with Israel. They were this way with God. Point F. But also they were obstinate. And here's that word in the Greek, right? It means to dispute, to refuse to answer again, right? Always talking back, refusing, disputing with God. Always talking back, again, to contradict God and deny, to gainsay. Always looking to get into an argument with God. Right? This is the kind of people, who, you know, cause if they wanna, if you get around these type of people, they're always contradicting or refuting, right? denying, opposing, right, negating what you say. Uh, God says one thing, they're they're murmuring and complaining and all of this. And these verses, uh, like I said, these words really do speak for themselves. Point G, we're moving forward. This is how they responded to the Lord. Just remember, this is not necessarily what he's saying about how they responded toward each other. This is how they responded to the Lord or Yahweh who delivered them from slavery and bondage. We read a couple of verses here, Exodus 16:3. This is just some of the flavor of why, uh, what God was upset about. And God doesn't get upset, that's an anthropopathism. Uh, so Exodus 16, 3, this is what they said. Oh, well, I'll go reading in 16, 2 first. 16.2 In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites, the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve, this entire assembly, to death. <laughs> Listen, talk about ungrateful. I mean, talk about somebody who is uh, stubborn, obstinate, right? This is this is the attitude that they had. Even though they had something good, always, oh, if we could just, we, we had it better when we were in slavery and the taskmaster was beating us and, and we barely had enough this or, you know, we were slaves. They had it better? Really? This is what you call those who just, can't be satisfied, always looking to contradict. No matter what the circumstances, it's always something to say, always talking back. And then there's Numbers 11, 1 through 6. Let's look at that real quick. Numbers 11, 1 through 6. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused the fire from the Lord burned around them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the place was called Tabernaa, Taberah, Taberah, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble, which is the mixed multitude, which with them began to crave other food again, And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. They make it sound like they had a great time in Egypt. Like things were more balmy. They were on the beach just sitting around eating fish and enjoying cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. Says, but we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. (laughs) In other words, they're like, we're not satisfied. And now you give us this manna. The translation of manna is, what is it? They didn't know what it was. Manna was like a coriander seed and looked like resin. So, anyway, they did all kinds of stuff with this manna. It sustained them for 40 years in the desert. God gave them food. In the desert. Bread from heaven. Anyway. uh, Just to note. All of this. Is to say. That Israel's attitude. Of disobedience. Of obstinance. Of willfully. Perversely. They they were refusing. To believe. And trust in God. And God dealt with them. As a result of this as well. And this is our last point. To make. In point H. Because of this. There is a history of judgment for Israel. And we must be sure not to repeat their failure. So as we close out this thought, and the thought in where we are in Romans chapter 10, we can see why Israel failed. We can see Paul's desire that Israel be saved. But Paul is also telling us the reasoning as to why they were not, and they did not believe. And what did God do? And what was their calling? They failed miserably. It's two books, if you'd like to read more. I mean, we've covered a lot of scriptures here and um, Romans here that we've covered Romans nine, ten. A lot about Israel. A lot about things that Paul is drawing us our attention to. But if you want to read a couple more, verses about all of this and get more background for yourselves go ahead and read the whole book of isaiah read and then after you finish reading that read jeremiah because why are we here i'm not trying trying to give you an education in the old testament but because we got so much to cover but it is because paul went here and he thinks we need to understand Uh, what happened to God's chosen people as the dispensation changed. Obviously, we talked about from Romans 9 how they objected, even from Romans 8. They did not like the fact that the church was foreknown and those who God foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. They don't like that. That's who we are in the church. So uh, I'll just read this last verse in Zechariah 7 9 through 14. And we're going to close out this chapter Zechariah 7 9 through 14 with these last words. This is what the Lord Almighty said, Administrator Administer administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Their answer? But they refuse to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turn their backs and covered their ears. Listen. <laughs> there you have it. Uh, they made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets so the Lord Almighty was very angry when i called when when i called they did not listen so when they called i would not listen says the Lord Almighty I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate that no one traveled through it. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. So, uh, you could read more of that chapter. I mean, it, it goes on. I mean, well, that's the end of the chapter, but you can continue reading more of Zechariah as well. What common theme you're going to hear is the judgment of Israel for their unbelief. And obviously they couldn't fulfill their covenant because they were not saved. And this is the leadership, the majority of them. We're going to have to close out this session. and um, well we do have some time for Q&A. So I'm going to open the floor now
1: well I really appreciate that one of the things that I definitely see as a theme there is that um, how Israel was was treating the prophets and actually going face to face with Jesus and accusing him um, it's the same thing as telling God to his faith Mm -hmm. um what they what they think of him and stuff.
0: True. And
1: so on the on the negative side, we see that equivalence going on. There, but on the positive side, we often talk about, um, well, as an opportunity on the positive side, we talk about it being, um, in regard to your attitude. So your attitude toward God's Word is the same as your attitude toward God.
0: Excellent yeah, uh, point to
1: make. Peter.
0: No, I was saying that's, that's, a, that's an excellent point to make. Uh, we we used to say that quite often. Your attitude toward the Word of God is your attitude toward God. Right. Go right ahead. You know, and
1: yet, yeah, you know, and and yet we have you know people who are almost saying uh, we are more sacred. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, we we have a, a familiar phrase that a lot of when we sometimes we'll talk about other people um, saying that well they've got this holier than thou attitude, right? Um, but certainly if, 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 if it is ever present today as it was back then, mm-hmm, yeah. That, uh, there, there are people who are holding on to something that they think is extra special and is theirs, and they're selfish about it, blocking other people out. And judging other people against it, all that stuff. Absolutely. But really, the way I see it is that I use the word opportunity. There are, you know, um, a lot of people would say that they have a loving attitude or a humble attitude toward God. And the the question is, the rhetorical question really is, um, well, is, is your attitude the same toward God's word? Are you humble toward God's word? Are you humble towards the Spirit of Truth and um, and, and hearing from Him? And uh, I, you know, that was something that was um, said to me long ago, long time, many years ago. Um, and I saw it as an opportunity, I, to, the you know, I would like my attitude toward God to be the same. So how do I, you know, how do I address that? Well, I treat His word and the word of christ and, um, and the things that are being said about the church and those are very personal powerful profound messages and, and they should be treated as such
0: absolutely um well you make a good point uh, because <clears throat> like you said what was going on then is going on now uh, maybe people are not going to hilltops to Sacrifice to idols and burn incense to pagan gods. Maybe that's not what's going on today, per se. But you got people who have um, made God out to be whoever they want him to be in their minds, and they reject his word. They don't listen to his word at all. Uh, so one there's a I remember there was a psalm I can't remember what it is right now. It's not important to find it, but I'll just quote it. Where God says, I have exalted my word above my name. So, in other words, God is saying, if you want to respect who I am, it is my word. And idolatry is just that you have fashioned a God. Maybe they don't make a God out of wood and stone. uh, But they have fashioned a God and then they invest that God with all whatever deity, properties that they would give it, and then they worship it. Never mind what God said. Never mind what God told them is who he is and what his salvation is all about. Forget about that. They have their own idea of who God is, and they're happy with it. As soon as you start telling them about what the Bible says, or what God, his word says, and out of here comes the conflict. And This is Exactly what happened to the disciples you know the, when they were facing religious persecution all throughout the centuries that followed the church uh, persecution, so excellent points to make uh, when you think about uh, that idolatry and how we have to revere god's word if that's our focus because that is the reality of God, thy word, your word is truth. Truth is the reality of God. That's what His plan is, His agenda, His focus. What He's about is found in the Word of God. So, I'll pause. Other thoughts out there before we close?
1: Yeah, I had a, a couple of thoughts. So one would be We say that there was a a prejudice that Israel had um, for the the Gentiles or anyone outside
0: of Israel? Absolutely. Yeah, they were separatists. Uh, They did not want to uh, go out to the other nations at all, they did not see themselves as a light to the Gentiles. they saw themselves just like we read <laughs> those verses. They were arrogant. Uh, they said, I'm too good for them, which is to really say they were arrogant because they thought they had the law, and obviously Gentiles didn't. So if they thought the law meant salvation, they had salvation, and Israel uh, Gentiles did not. So yeah, I, I'd say they thought better of themselves. Or, or, or like you brought up, I think it was last week with the woman at the well, right? They looked at Samaritans, they looked down on them. So when Jesus said something to this woman, she was surprised that Jesus was even talking to her in the first place. What, what, do, do you do know I'm a Samaritan, and you are a Jew? I, that's obvious. So why are you talking to me? That was the first thought. But no. Jesus was not like that at all. But right. the others were. I think that was a verse where I think it was her who said, "Even can we even get the crumbs from the table or something like that? Yeah, I don't think it was a woman at the well, but it was there is another verse where a woman uh, was a Gentile and she was after Jesus to, you know, I can't remember exactly what the context was, but yeah, she says, even dogs get um, what the crumbs that fall from the table, and and, um, and she was being facetious in what she was saying, uh, and and but the thought was that Jesus came not only to prove, you know, and there was a couple well, of thoughts. He came to present himself to Israel. Uh, that was the goal he had to as their Messiah. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. So this is not to say he didn't come to the world, but he came to his covenant people first. Uh, and you talk about first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, right? And that's true. He,
1: no, I was saying yeah, that that was the backdrop of that statement about the cross. So. though. That
0: is right. Yeah, that is right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's it's interesting when you think about um, yeah that that that's part of it is how Israel uh, thought of others. Uh, remember, there's another example of when Peter began to tell the story of how he went, you know, he got the vision, you know, the sheet and all that, and then he went over to Cornelius' house. <clears throat> he was led by it spirit to to Cornelius' house and he went inside the house and he saw all these Gentiles in there and uh, you know this is the whole story right so he's telling the Jews about that instead of them getting to the end of the story where they know you know that the Gentiles came and received the Lord and God showed his inclusion of the Gentiles by the sign gift of the baptism of the Spirit, which is to speak in tongues and, and so forth. Well, the 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 Jews there said, What? You went into the house of a Gentile, Peter? You, you did that? There were very strict rules. How are they going to be a light to the Gentiles if they won't even consort at all with the Gentiles? It was a matter of, You know, don't touch me, I'm a I'm a Jew, you're unclean, I'm you know it was just a mess. So yeah, they failed at their calling. We see remnants of it in the New Testament as well. The the disparity. Even in the church we find infighting between Jews and Gentiles. They're supposed to be in one body, but the Jews thought that they were superior to the Gentiles. So, yeah, all that continues. And it it continues on to this day, I would say. I don't don't mean with Jews and Gentiles, but with arrogance. You can find pockets of arrogance in churches where there's racism, all sorts of things going on in churches uh, where people uh, have separated, for whatever reason, themselves from another group of people. And uh, that's what happened in the early church as well.
1: Yeah, sometimes it's more than pockets of
0: uh, arrogance, it's whole wardrobes and (laughs) walking closets. Yeah, that's true. I made it sound like it was a little bit of that going on, which is wrong to think. There's a lot of that going on in the church. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, This is, so when I say we have to learn from all of this, I'm saying one, we don't want to neglect salvation and the teaching of salvation. Not only do we teach salvation, but we teach the foundation, that people have a good, strong foundation of understanding what salvation is, what the bad news is, what the good news is, so they understand where they came from, why they need saving in the first place. Uh, All of that is important, that people have that as a basis of their understanding before they can grow and continue to grow to the deeper things of God so we got to teach the whole realm of of what the bible is giving us not just you know one particular thing once and and what do we see in hebrews 6 uh, once we got the basics down we got to move on to maturity so we can grow up now god wants to use us in this world but first we got to grow up so yeah there are, there are goals but what we find is that churches don't want to talk about salvation. If you ask Christians about salvation today, what happens? They get angry. Oh, what are you trying to say? I'm not saved. What, what, what's the, what are you, why are we going back then? I told you I believed in Jesus. What, what, what are you questioning me for? We can't even have a conversation about salvation today because people are so uptight about it. Now, why is that? Why? Because the foundation is so important And yet, that's what happened to Israel. They lost that. They were walking around just believing in the law. And thinking that that's what's going to justify them before God. And they were far from truth and far from salvation, I would say. Because they thought they were getting it by the works of the law. Therefore, no flesh will be justified in his sight by the deeds of the law. That was specifically written for Jews, so just to note. Other thoughts out there before we do wrap this up? All right, sounds like we're right at our time as well. Please bow your heads with me. We're going to close and we'll continue. We'll have a little wrap-up next week of Romans chapter 10, and we should broach Romans 11. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had in Romans chapter 10. I am glad, and I appreciate your, your grace, your enlightenment as we've gone through this chapter verse by verse. Thank you for those who have joined us and have stuck right in there and hung in there to hear every word that is spoken in Romans chapter 11. We thank you for the testimony so that we can know not to repeat the failures of Israel, not to emulate them, but knowing that we have a different purpose, that we're called, that we're not of this world. But we do have our... (coughs) ambassadors of christ we are ambassadors of christ and we pray that you will continue to put us in situations where we can open our mouths and speak the words of life <coughs> all this we ask in christ's name for his sake amen
1: amen amen, amen.